0: Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. government.
1: Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Hello. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Doctrine. We have a very timely topic queued up today. It's FM3O and the Army's return to large-scale combat operations. Today we're going to discuss the circumstances that gave us the 2017 edition of FM3O, and the shift to large-scale combat operations, or LISCO. This is going to be the first of several episodes of Breaking Doctrine, in which we'll take a deeper look at the evolution of operational doctrine, from the global war on terror, all the way back to the Cold War. And this is a careful balance between maintaining the knowledge we have, adopting lessons we've learned, and then anticipating how we're going to fight in the next conflict. 2017's FM3O wasn't the first FM3O to attempt this, but it's probably our most recent example. We've discussed in previous episodes the review and evolution process is continual. This process of reflection and adaptation also means that we are addressing our Army's roles now and in the future and asking ourselves, what it means to conduct multi-domain operations. In other words, the CAD doctrine writers have been deep in the wilderness, thinking and researching and talking with a wider army and our partners, and ultimately, we're writing a book. And not just any book, it's the book, it's FM3O Operations. So where do you go when you want to know a little bit about what it's like to evolve a body of knowledge while the army is still conducting operations around the world? Fun fact, you find some soldiers who know about that sort of thing. You find yourself Lieutenant General Retired Michael Lundy, the former commanding general of the Combined Arms Center, Mr. Rich Creed, the director of Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate here at Fort Leavenworth, and Lieutenant Colonel Retired Mike Flynn, a member of the FM3O writing team, who's been a consistent contributor to editions of FM3O. And then you ask him to come on your podcast. So, gents, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Nikki. Thanks. Good good to be here.
1: So I think it would help to give our listeners, especially a younger crowd, uh, a little bit of background about why the army, about the army, and also its doctrine prior to the global war on terror, because there was this period between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union and the events of 9-11. And during this period, the army was not this dormant entity. It was actually conducting operations and generating lessons, and ultimately, it codified them in doctrine. So I'd like to have you guys shed a little bit of light on that post cold War pre-911 experience, and also what was informing the Army's body of knowledge overall?
2: Well, sir, I, I'll take that to, to start, and then uh, because your, your career and my career overlap uh, significantly um, with you obviously been a little bit more on the, on the senior side by a couple years, but, um, you know, so we commissioned in the Army in 1989. Uh, airline battle was our doctrine. Um, we, we started the drawdown in Europe uh, and then we kind of had the, the one big example of putting airland battle into practice in Operation Desert Storm with that force that was trained and equipped for, for that that we had uh, you know, essentially grown up in uh, over you know depending on what generation you were for a few years or, or even a decade or more um, but after that, you know, the rest of your experiences, formative experiences as company couple of great officers in the 1990s were doing those real-world contingencies in places like the Balkans, uh, Somalia, Haiti, uh, and so forth. Uh, and so the Army, while it continued to train against the large-scale combat operations threat at the combat training centers and MCTP warfighters, your practical uh, experiences in the field and conducting operations were something less than large-scale combat operations. So the skill sets you had were valuable in terms of command and control and forces and discipline and those kinds of things. But um, the doctrine really didn't account for that because uh, the airline battle was really all about defeating the Warsaw Pact and to a lesser extent North Korea. And so um, over time and about the time that I got to uh, CGSC and the School of Advanced Military Studies here at Leavenworth, we came out with a new 3.0 or a new 100-5 and we changed the numerology to align with joint doctrine so it went from 100 series books to three series books. Um, And that's where you uh, got to this idea of full spectrum operations. In other words, the Army does windows, we do big fights, we do small fights, we do peacekeeping, we do security force assistance, we do all of these kinds of things and the doctrine was informed by lessons they really started in the 93, 100-5 when they talked about military operations other than war, right? Uh, but that never really caught on because the acronym was Mootwa and it made you sound like you were doing some sort of weird college cheer, right? And, and so that being said, the content of the doctrine was pretty good and it, it did help the forces during the 90s, but the full spectrum operations seemed to capture the big idea. I don't know, sir, if that was your experience or not. No
0: I, no, I agree. And I, I think, you know, where the National Command Authority was focused, you know, what were the, you know, the interests of the nation at the time? And as, as the Cold War ended, that started to shift, and there was a lot of thinking about, well, what what are our national interests? So, you know, our doctrine is also informed by, you know, it's largely informed by the requirements that we have that are set, set about uh, on the service on what we need to be able to do for the nation. And so that, I think there was a period of... Uh, a lack of complete understanding from a from a national perspective national interest I think uh, it, it turned it became more internalized and it also became more uh, sympathetic or humanitarian in nature that you know we were we were looking across to make a, a better global environment uh, we didn't perceive really any threats uh, to our national interest but we saw you know limited threats around the globe so I think that that was a part of that transition piece too um, you know, there was not a seminal event, really. Uh, the seminal event was, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union and our primary threat um, that we had built our doctrine around, built our organization around, built our training around, developed our material solutions for. Um, that, you know, everybody believed went away, uh, and so we started a transition. And I think there was also the peace dividend um, that, that played a pretty significant role in uh, and reshaping our armed forces, you know the fact that we were downsizing in a significant way. I mean, the army, the army of 1986 that I came into, looked very different in the 90s. Was much smaller, um, less capable from a large-scale combat operations, but was refocused to being able to do some of these other tasks. So I think that's uh, that was the start of um, you know a pretty significant period of time. Uh, that we did not really focus on what were potentially nation-threatening, you know, threats that were either in dormancy and going to evolve eventually, or uh, come out eventually, or those that were starting to rise and, and emerge as possible challenges to, you know, to the nation in the future.
2: Well, and it gets to the General Perkins thing about what's the army for kind of thing, right? right? So you got to show you're relevant to that, that changing thing, and I think we benefited though. Uh, and you and I used to talk about this, we coasted on um, the LISCO culture that we developed in the 70s and 80s. Right. um, Because our training models pretty much stayed the same, unless you were doing an MRE, but even in a mission rehearsal exercise for Bosnia or Kosovo, you still had some sort of a combat piece of that, right, to keep everybody's skill up, because your credibility as a peacekeeper came from your ability to to kind of- Well,
0: I I think the complexity of large-scale combat operations you know, when you develop your leaders to be able to operate in that environment, and your training and your processes that you have, both in the Institutional Army and in the Operational Force, all of those processes, they, they carry very well into other forms of, of combat. Um, the the reverse is not true. And that's one of the challenges that we saw as, you know, and again, not to get ahead of the, the discussion, but, you know, it's... What, what emerged out of the, the counterinsurgency, limited contingency operations that we became fully embroiled in after 9-11, um, the level of discipline, training, rigor, innovation, initiative um, at echelons above really the battalion level, maybe the brigade, uh, that there's not a demand signal for that. and And we were more focused on other other complex tasks, but they didn't develop the skill sets that we needed to be able to operate in truly a complex environment where it was very contested in large-scale combat. So I think you're right. We, we were able to to coast a bit um, after the wall fell, after Desert Storm. You know, A lot of the things that we had learned and how we developed our leaders, the rigor that was in our professional military education, the fact that our combat training centers were focused uh, in the right place they really were what drove change in our army and as soon as we really started to adapt the combat training centers more to mission rehearsal type um training centers focused on a specific fight which was either afghanistan or or iraq uh, that's where we started to to no longer change the army uh given the emerging oes that were out there and i think that's that's kind of what led us to the twenty seventeen version.
2: Well, and that that resident skill in the senior company grade, officer NCOs, and then the entire field grade population, uh, got you uh, you know, a successful IF one. Right. Um, a successful um, Fallujah two thousand four. Right. Uh, our battalion the battalion I served in as an operations officer did the last what they used to call the high intensity rotations at Uh, NTC in August of 2003 after that all of them became focused on mission rehearsal yeah and the
0: reason they were focused on mission rehearsal was really about dwell time I mean it was a we were faced with a real-world problem that you know a significant amount of our army was committed um, to fighting the global war on terror and and so there was no you know there was nobody that that was not being thoughtful about the future or you know there was no bad actors there it was out of necessity. Our army was much smaller, and the requirements for army, you know, at times where we had 25 or you know, 30 brigades deployed with you know some enabling brigades, some types of enabling brigades doing, you know, 15 month deployments with nine months back home and then deploying again. We had to adapt our training to where home station training uh, did not have the rigor that it had previously. Because there wasn't time. Because um, you know, you come back off of a 12, 15 month deployment. You know, you can't put people in the field. You know, a month later, uh, and expect an all volunteer army to survive that. So we adapted our training centers to really fill that niche, and we and we reduced the requirements to focus on what was most prevalent. Because the unit of action. Um, you know, largely was you know at the company platoon level, some battalion level operations, some brigade level operations, but very minimal, frankly, with the exception of you know things like Fallujah. Um, but by and large, you know, we were focused at the small unit level, so that's where we, we shifted our training to to allow us to um, to not burn the force down. Uh, so it was out of necessity. There was no there was no ill intention or lack of foresight there because there was plenty of us realizing and talking about at the time that, you know, we're going to have to think about how we recover our ability to fight at echelon uh, when we come out of this global war on terror, which nobody would have predicted, you know, at the time lasted, you know, 18, 20 years.
1: I had a quick question to kind of follow up on this, especially given, given the experience that you, all three of you had. Um, was that a frustration to go through this idea of I have a limited amount of time to get after training objectives and at the same time with our four gen the army force generation plan and platform did it did it feel like you were being constrained and did you want to and did your peers want to actually have a chance to to be there and choose training objectives
0: No, I think as we got initially you know in the early stages because we we, also had, we were also changing the Army. You know, The structure of the Army was changing. We were, we were modernizing. Um, we were adapting a lot of formations, and we found that we needed to adapt even more formations as we were going along because the requirements were there. But as we completed the transitions of you know, our brigade combat teams, our combat aviation brigades, our artillery battalions and brigades, uh, there were lots of units that were in a significant amount of change so that that change was ongoing plus we're fielding a lot of new equipment i mean you know think about you know m and you know our, our armored personnel you know wheeled vehicles that were coming in all kinds of jamming equipment to face you know face the ied threat there were a lot of new things that we we're having to bring in to deal with just the problem set of either iraq or afghanistan uh, all of that was going on so it contributed to you know this this competition for time. So what it forced us to do was really focus our training at the echelon that was at most risk uh, and commanders had to take risk at, you know, where the least amount of risk in the near term. So it forced us into current ops. So, you know, we got to have very good platoons and companies that can do a wide range of missions, you know, in a counterinsurgency type environment, whether it's, you know, local governance to, you know, security operations to, you know, limited, Uh, offensive and defensive operations and that's where we focused a lot of our effort Um, so you know from a frustration perspective I, I don't know that you know I would say anyone was frustrated because you know brigade commanders division commanders battalion commanders company commanders we knew the mission we were gonna have to do and and so were we able to train effectively for that and the answer is yes I think that you know we were not sending untrained forces um to do these missions we were but we were only trained to do that mission and it's just a small subset of what skills um and knowledge and abilities you have to have to be able to fight in large-scale combat so so broadly looking to the future you know we could sit back and think about yeah we're not we're not preparing ourselves for what's next we didn't have the luxury of time to be able to do that but we were putting very very well-trained formations into the counterinsurgency fight. Um, and I think, you know, with the evolution of doctrine and counterinsurgency, a lot of the new equipment that was coming in, we were in a constant evolution of how we were thinking about fighting this. But, you know, we never had more than a platoon at risk in any of this fight. And uh, and I think you can look at, you know, how our soldiers, and frankly, across the Joint Force, uh, did very, very well um, for that that very narrow spectrum
2: of conflict that we needed to operate in. Well, and the, I think the other point, too, sir, and this is a, from how you treat doctrine, right? So the focus of doctrine then was on the current fight and getting it right. Right. Um, and so the focus of lessons collection and, and after-action reviews and all of those things that inform you know, changes to doctrine over time come from that practical experience in the field. But we still had doctrine for the old, you know, the former type of fight that we used to focus on. We just were not focused on. It. And so you could say it was neglected a little bit. In other words, you may not have had the, the ability to see, hey, is this stuff still applicable? Should we have to fight in 2020? Well, the,
0: the the doctrine that we had that was focused on large-scale combat, and I agree, we still we still had, it had not evolved completely, but there was enough still there. But really, I think to me, where it, the challenge when you're in these kind of fights um, in this prolonged period of time that we had was the doctrine was not driving the other elements of DOT PF with respect to that particular part of the continuum. You know, no, absolutely. Yes. We, we, we adjusted formations to coin. We adjusted material solutions to coin. We repurposed units that were, you know, largely focused an artillery unit, you know, that, that's focused on counter battery fire, and providing mass fires and support of maneuver. We refocused them to doing, you know, infantry type tasks where they were actually, you know, infantry battalions not taking artillery to the fight because we just didn't have enough combat power to do all of it. So, I think that, that, uh, as an army from a strategic perspective, and again, no, I don't think there was any uh, any lack of foresight. I think it was just a simple fact that hey, the inbox is really, really full, and what we see on the horizon. Um, you know, we're not seeing a huge emerging threat right now that will force us to have to put another eye towards large-scale combat. And that persisted for some time, um, at least up until, you know, right after 2010, 2011.
3: I'd just like to add a little bit to that, General Lundy, it's, is at the time I was a doctrine writer here, so I, I started like 2001. And so I joined up in 85, very familiar with the 86 doctrine and the Cold War all the way through that. But then when I became in, in the Doctrine around 2001 timeframe, one of the biggest shifts, I think, um, I think the 2008 edition of FM3O was as big as a shift as what the 86 or the version before that was, and that's because of everything you just said. There was a change in the, the situation, and we had to have enough forces to go do operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so when we were here in doctrine, we were working with all the other folks in the Army doing this. um, And and we were working the modular Army, which was a big deal as we were repurposing forces. One of the, and it was not with not foresight, or there was no malice, as as you said, but one of the assumptions made was we will not face a peer threat for 15 years. The inbox is full right now. What do we need to do to change our Army, to change our doctrine, to get at that problem? And it's interesting, and I don't want to jump ahead, but it's it's interesting now we're here about fifteen years later, and the threats we're facing and that kind of gets us a little bit to why we went to the two thousand and seventeen edition. but that's a you know just being here as a doctrine guy, that was an insight um, and and really, it was like on the board like an assumption we will not face a peer threat for 15 years. So we can go about...
0: That gets back to taking risk. You know, and a a big part of our current doctrine right now is not how we avoid risk or how we become risk averse, but it's, you know, do we take the right risk? And the Army had, you know, the Army Department of Defense, but largely the Army, um, had to make some decisions about what level of risk could be taken uh, to be able to accomplish the mission that we were given. And history will tell whether we whether we timed it right and we synchronized it right and that we took the right amount of risk for the right amount of time. And then were we able to recover and face the next set of challenges? And that's what we're in right now is how do we, how do we face this next set of challenges? Uh, you know, Over the last five years, we've been in that, in that transition, that inflection point um, to be able to get there.
2: Well, there's, there's always a lag time between the new doctrine and then it being adopted by everybody, right? Just because you publish it and announce it. Yeah. So you remember, because I think you were at CAC-T when, when this discussion took place, but the useful spectrum operations that started in 2001, and and I think that ran to 2008 before it was Unified Land Operations, Mike, was it?
3: Full spectrum? Yeah, full yeah. spectrum yeah. was still
2: going. <laughs> So even when we went to the unified land operations and, you know, okay, nobody really cares what you call it. What what it encompasses is pretty much, in many cases, very similar to what went before. But do you remember when uh, CT, Combat Training Center, rotations that were directed to become more focused on... Sticks lines. Well, but no, but land combat against peer threats, right? Yeah. Um, and everybody used to call them full-spectrum operations, yeah. which is exactly the opposite of what the original full-spectrum was supposed to mean. Full-spectrum before was supposed to be account for all those things other than that high-intensity. then we went to company. decisive action. Right. So yeah, decisive action rotation. People and, like bumper stickers. Right. you got to be
0: careful about what you put in doctrine because it can become a bumper sticker and take on a life of its own.
2: Yeah, someone's looking for a label. So, uh so the chief says, stop calling them full spectrum. So, all right, we're going to call them decisive action. And the decisive action became a thing, even though it was never intended to, to be a synonym for the other thing. And got frequent questions about, okay, explain to me
0: what decisive action is. And we had it double defined in the manual, <laughs> right. So it was uh, that, those are all things that you learn about. Yes, sir.
1: So um, I want to talk about the big green elephant in the room because some of us were here and remember it. Uh, what, if any, role did Doctrine 2015 have in kind of setting conditions or affecting that 2017 push or that 2017 work that began?
2: I think there were—it was more than just Doctrine 2015, there were a host of things that were decided in the between, say, what do you say, Mike, 2010 and, and 2015 when it was realized and, and actually finished. Um, The first was, you know, we change doctrine or the way we approach the doctrine based on lots of inputs. And in some cases, senior leaders get to make the decisive call on that. So uh, there was a vision within TRADOC that said the current way we have uh, doctrine organized and so forth was not effective and that there was uh, too much redundancy or waste or whatever the words were that were used at the time. And um, it was too hard to navigate because we basically call everything a field manual. And so there was an idea that in this modern era where you could have searchable databases and so forth, why don't we have a hierarchy that goes from the general to the specific? And that so if you're a generalist, you can go to this level. If you're a specialist, you can get down to this level. And in theory, that makes a lot of sense. But when you, um, in some cases, what felt like arbitrarily decided what the numbers of these things would be, what would stay or what would go, um, you ran risks of, of, of losing the richness of discussion, as, as Mike, I think, will expand upon with some detailed examples. But um, And then you put the entire, in this case, training and doctrine uh, command, doctrine enterprise, and really some of the concepts people, but all the that comes from this their entire focus is changing the structure of this thing, and not the, not the content. You were trying to figure out where to put the content in. And relatively junior people with minimal levels of supervision, because again, there's wars going on here, uh, and, and you don't always have uh, your full uh, group of people that you should have looking at these kinds of ideas. So people made decisions based on their own best judgment about what stayed and what went so that we could fit into this construct. Um, so we ended up with a really good filing system for Doctrine, I think. It, um,
0: it, 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 although we had surface. one. Yeah, surface. File, I, I said filing system. I didn't say what was in the <laughs> folders. Um, you know, and I think that was, um, you know, one of the challenges. And, and I think we had one too many files, so we made the decision when I was here to, to, to take one of the files out because, you know, the, the, the 10-page um, you know, Cliff Notes version became what everybody read, and so we had, we had lots of folks that had really good little bumper sticker elevator speeches. But understanding the intellectual underpinnings behind those little bumper stickers, we found that uh, we didn't have it there. So combining the ADPs and the ADRPs together to to bring more of the richness of the discussion and the logic. I mean, it, we had some, although we had very good logical logical connections. Uh, if you understood the full body we didn't have places where it was apparent if you only read you know the 10 page ADP so that that was one of the things that I changed that I you know didn't ask permission and nobody nobody missed it so I guess I got away with that Uh, but I think it helped you know really kind of tie the logic a little better and then you know the focus was how do we take this really good filing system um, and Make sure that the content was right and i'm not saying that all those manuals had bad content a lot of them were very very good but there were there were many that and there were disconnects there were some you know the the they weren't necessarily as threaded together as well as they are now um and understanding that logical flow through everything and the taxonomy there's a taxonomy to doctrine um that you know you kind of have to follow because it, it helps you frame um You know, the the ideas that are in there and be able to stitch them together in this logical sequence of, you know, very complex things that are happening on multiple time horizons and, you know, throughout
2: the entire depth of the operational framework. So. And it drives you towards redundancy sometimes, too. Like, what's the right level of redundancy? So, you know, we were doing a session this week, and the foreign officers always asked the British in in particular, said, you know, we like your doctrine, but it's really detailed. You guys put an awful lot of stuff, and so they did a word count between. Their doctrinal publications and ours, and it was an order of magnitude different. And I said, "Well, you know, one of the reasons why we do that is we think there's a necessary level of redundancy because you don't want people carrying four books around with them right. on the same topic. I mean, you really want uh, staff officers to have, you know, their 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 uh, helmet bag filled with just the things that they need to carry around. No kidding. That you could keep in the bustle rank of the tank or, or whatever. And so." Uh, We are, out of necessity, fairly descriptive because we assume that not everybody has done this job before or is familiar with the subject matter, nor do they have time to read the ADP and then the FM before they get to the ATP. I mean, it would be nice if they did.
0: Yeah, and I think some of that goes back to when you look at some of our doctrine that emerged uh, post-Cold War for a period up to, you know, 2000, 2001, we we got very checklist-focused, and we tried to... You know, MET-T, you know, and this is one of the things that, you know, <laughs> it was a big thing when I came in, you know, because almost every sentence in doctrine ended with MET-TC dependent. And, you know, I said, well, look, if it is, in fact, you know, the operational variable of MET-TC, then maybe we ought to talk about what those variables might be, because do we have the experience to understand them? Uh, because what we were finding was, one, some of our soldiers couldn't define MET-T, just didn't know what the acronym was. Or... How to use that operational? You know, looking at operational variables or mission variables, and 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 being able to contextualize given that particular you know whether it's an attack or a defense or whatever, you know, well, what potential variables real world would be involved with that? So, you know, we've had to uh, educate, educate, yes, sir. Um, and and as the army's learning again in large scale combat operations, I think that's helping us think more deeply than just you know a checklist or you know, you can you can memorize the acronym for you know the three, four, five tenants that are out there, but you know that's really not that's not the art piece of it. You know, and that's uh, that's just being able to pass a soldier exam. You got to be able to
2: contextualize it and what it means. You know, in the fight. So we yeah. So we wanted to you know, based on your guidance at the time, it was really about making sure people weren't lazy yeah. intellectually lazy. Yeah, that was, right? that's I mean, exactly the words I used. <laughs> yes, I recall, and. I think uh, – so I, I'm pretty sure we – nowhere in anything that's been revised since 2016 does it say uh, METTC dependent. Correct. Because it's, it's all about uh, not farming the, the burden of understanding what a commander is telling their staffs to do, which is hiding it behind an acronym and then saying, go do great things. I need to explain to you what I mean in terms of the mission, the enemy, the, the troops available, terrain and civil consideration, or whatever, in a particular context. Otherwise, you're abrogating your responsibility, yeah. right? And, and uh, so I think we've followed and met your intent.
3: Let, let me add just a point on the, <clears throat> the filing system that General Lindy was talking about. You know, Doctrine 2015 was a pretty good idea, but we had one or two too many files. And I think the good news right now is as you're seeing doctrine that's going to come out um, and I'll just use the, the topic of planning. So under the Doctrine 2015 series, to understand planning, you had to go to ADP 50 to understand the fundamentals, but then you went to another book to understand how to do the MDMP, and then you had to go to an ATP to understand how to do design. And so what we're doing, like, so for example, we're going to release an FM 50 out here, which was in 2005, but under Doctrine 2015, we didn't have it. We're about ready to introduce a new FM 50 that's going to have Chapter One, the fundamentals of planning, the MDMP, troop leading procedures, design, the orders format, all in one book. And so now I, call, I, I kind of said disparagingly a little bit that, that we kind of had to go fish; you had to try, figure out where to go for it. So by eliminating a couple of files, now you got packaged document of the topic. And I think that's going to be helpful, and, and FM 30 kind of did that for us as well.
1: So I think this is kind of a perfect opportunity to, to get into the 2017 book itself. Um, when I was doing the almost a post-mortem research for today's discussion, um, I was digging back through some articles that came out. And one was a 2018 article out of War on the Rocks. Um, it was a published op-ed from Dave Barno and Nora Benzahel about the US military's dangerous embedded assumptions. And I noticed that 2018, and they stated that they found themselves thinking about how unchallenged assumptions can prove very deadly in wartime, and it led them to wonder, quote, what convictions are so deeply embedded in the, in today in the military's planning for the next war that could lead to a catastrophe if proven wrong? Most of the focus was on Air Force and Navy, but one of their questioned assumptions kind of stuck out to me, which is advanced U.S. weapons systems will operate effectively under wartime conditions. And I was like, whoa, funny that because i know in 2016 this group assembled here was already thinking about that and already building the army's doctrinal answer so i'm going to start off straight to you sir like what was what was the thing that got you up at night or what was the midnight phone call what what said you know i think it's time for us to refocus the army on large scale combat i'm going to use fm30 as my tool to do so you are Like, the doctrine, you are probably one of the most doctrinally passionate (laughs) Jews I've ever met. But Uh, what was that process that said, nope, this is it, we're shifting?
0: Yeah, when they told me I was going to be the commander of the Combined Arms Center. (laughs) When I got a call from from the chief of staff of the Army on a Friday and said, you take command on Monday, I knew what I needed to do when I got here. And and that's not to be flippant, but I mean— it, it had built from frankly um over many years and i mean I, I think it's just you know experience does kind of matter and our experiences shape uh who we are and how we think and as a you know as a young lieutenant starting out you know in europe as my first assignment you know sitting right across the you know the inner german border from the eighth guards army and thinking about that problem set of you know how am I going to neo my family out of Germany if, if it goes down, to going to the National Training Center and and being an OCT out there you know as a captain and a major, and you know for four years fighting every day against the the black horse that was you know configured as this pure threat, um, to then having to deploy my you know my brigade and battalion into a counterinsurgency fight um, and seeing how different that was. Um, also shaped by desert storm and then i think what really kind of where i where i really started to see that that we were going to have a an issue at the strategic level of the army probably was my time at jrtc as a senior trainer where i'd come from a national the national training center as a as a major gone off and done battalion command done a deployment and then came back as the as a senior trainer down there and we had we had completely moved away from conducting combat training center rotations and we were doing sticks lanes. We were doing what I expected captains to be doing um, at home station. Uh, we were leading that for units. And again, it was because of no malice. I was seeing units that were very quick. We were, we were standing up new brigades, standing up new battalions. We were reshaping the entire army and, and there was no time to train at home station. So we we're having to use our combat training center program, which to me, the kind con- you know, the combat training centers are what changes, including the Mission Command Training Program. You know, so your your National Training Center at Fort Irwin, the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, our Joint uh, Multinational Readiness Center, you know, in Hohenfels, and the Mission Command Training Program that focuses on echelons above brigade. Those four things are the stimulus that drives change in our Army, and the thing that drives doctrine in our Army are those four elements. If you do it at the CTC, the, that— that crucible event that was for a unit and a commander—that's um, how you change the army. You change the army's behavior because it's—it's it's experiential learning. It is cause and effect. We do it in PME, but you know, professional military education. You know, if somebody's going to show up into that once every four or five years. You give them a blast of doctrine. It's not—it's not under. There's no cause and effect that you—you you know, a lot of it's rote. You know, memorization. You're doing some simulation and stuff like that, but it's not the most effective way to change the Army. Uh, It helps, it really helps enrich the Army. I would say it doesn't change the Army. What changes the Army is, you know, how you write your doctrine and then how you enforce that doctrine, how you infuse that doctrine through your combat training centers or through combat, um, which the combat training centers used to replicate very well. And when I came out of, you know, JRTC, And then went off took brigade command and came back out of that and went out to be a division DCG at the first armored division and took the division out for its first division field exercise Um, I saw us back to doing the same thing doing sticks lanes for companies and the threat was starting to emerge at that time I mean you're starting to see Russia you know, emerging again or trying to reemerge. China is starting to rise. North Korea is certainly very present. Iran was a was a variable out there. So, those four things um, all presented risks to the nation and and risks to to us. So as we went in, I got down to the aviation center. I know I'm giving you a long answer, but there there wasn't there wasn't a you know there wasn't a phone call. I guess it was a uh, it was accumulation of a lot of things. When I got to Rucker, I. I looked at the aviation doctrine and it was outdated. Uh, and it needed to be and so I wrote the doctrine but but I didn't have anything to write to. I was sending things up here to CAD, you know, and I was in discussions with the CAD dad at that time and you other know, things are I, I was putting in the doctrine he's like you're getting a little ahead of us. And I said that's okay. I need to get the aviation branch, you know, back out of fighting as, you know, teams of two aircraft and thinking about how we're going to how we're going to maneuver. How are we going to be a maneuver force? Uh, and how are we going to deal with large-scale combat? Because being a scout weapons team or, or the team tactics piece, that will fall out of it. And I can still sustain our coin proficiency in doing that. So when I got back up here to CAC, I mean, it was a, uh, you know, there's lots of discussion about, hey, we've got to get moving on doctrine. 2015 kind of got us kicked off. And I was here when I was in CAC-T. I was the deputy at the time that, you know, we, General Perkins really drove kind of restructuring how our doctrine is and, and uh, and the seminal document that drives everything we do is 3O, and we needed a new 3O. So I think probably the first person that you know I had in my office was, or one of the first decisions I made was, you know, with Colonel Creed, getting him on board as the as our doctor in chief, and uh, and moving out with how do we think about, and and we'd become very capabilities based. Our our doctrine was more focused from a capabilities perspective, and it really it was not threat focused. The doctrine, our best doctrine, I think that we had, you know, was threat focused. When you look back in our history, we you know, where we defined a threat and we we understood what that threat did, and, and it drove MLPF. It, drove, it it defined the problem, and it, and I don't believe our doctrine, you know, since we'd come out of the Cold War, had really defined the problem adequately that we needed to solve. It defined a problem. And it really defined the problem that was in the army's inbox and it was not the range of problems that the army needed to be able to deal with so i think that you know in a broad term all of that rolled together was what was the impetus for you know driving 30 and, and i didn't know how long i was going to be here in cac um you know it could have been a year it could have been four years it ended up being four years so i guess i got lots of redos but uh, so there was also a sense of urgency because I, you know, I, I went down to Fort Rucker thinking I was going to be the CG down there for two or three years and moved up here about a year and a half later. So I, I, I felt a sense of urgency to get it moving because I knew the the amount of work to get it done would would take time and and we needed to be we needed to be thorough, but we couldn't we couldn't drag it out because. For doctrine to drive changes in the professional military education, for the you know for that, for that, that capstone doctrine to drive the subordinate doctrine to drive PME to drive the combat training centers back to what they needed to be doing, um, we needed to get it out relatively quickly. And we were we were still you know buying lots of counterinsurgency capabilities when in fact the counterinsurgency fight was starting to wane and the other threats were emerging. So. I don't know if that answered your question, but, hey, there's a long diatribe on.
2: But there was also, from our perspective and me particularly as a new guy showing up, uh, and that was the first thing in the inbox that we talked about, sir, was we had been getting, in a broad sense, very specific guidance that started with how CTC rotations were supposed to be from General Milley. And he was pretty outspoken, even in congressional testimony, about who the bad guys are and why those kinds of fights uh which what we were working that whole peer near peer threat but the, the big idea was um, the thing that would be radically different in operations against the russia china and to a lesser extent but similar north korea or, or iran was that they could do certain things to us that we were doing to other people with impunity for 20 something years and the, the the idea that was a linkage to a concept that tradoc was working on at the time was if you can be contested in all domains and that makes the nature of the fight very different. And so that combination of hearing what the big brain guys like General McMaster and some others were thinking about in TRADOC and then the chiefs, you know, he may not have ever called us on the phone and said something, but we knew what the intent was. Absolutely. No, and I think
0: the, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Russia had gone to the Crimea, you know, Ukraine. We'd looked at the Russian new generation warfare study. There were, there were, you know, China's building islands in the North China Sea. I mean, those were the things that were bubbling around the world. And, and even though we were still in both Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, there, there were clear and present dangers that were on a what some would still argue was a pretty distant horizon, you know, because, you know, our assessment of Russia and China, you know, there were a lot of people talking 2030, 2035, 2040. Uh, And when you look at the life cycle of anything in the Army, I mean, you know, it takes you seven or eight years to build a new combat system. You know, I mean, sometimes longer than that. You know, it takes you five years to change PME and it's not, you know, you can change it that year, but, you know, it takes about five years for, for enough people to get it to where, you know, there's some continuity, you know, you get a CTC rotation, you know, once every two years. So your ability to change stuff very rapidly requires you to, if doctrine is driving a lot of that, it's one of the reasons why it became kind of the main effort, you know, as I came out of the gate here for me uh, as the commander, because that that was going to be the spark that should light all of the fires. And having, having the chief on board, um, who frequently asked me for copies of 3 I'm not sure he ever read them, but I frequently talked to him about them. Um, and, you know, for him to pick up that mantle and drive that, that gave us the leverage to push it into really every piece of the Army that needed it, whether it was our you know, our total Army analysis of how we develop formations to you know all the material developers. It, it became a lens that we looked through at a lot of things across the Army to, to say, well, hey, is that the right piece we need to be building? Or is that the right way we need to develop a leader? Is that the way we need to be fighting our CTCs? Um, it, it put the right lens on all of that. Um, while also and we were very deliberate I think in not um, not turning a blind eye to the lessons that we'd learned over the last 15 or 18 years because there were there were tremendous lessons that were very applicable and very important for us to bring into how we thought about large scale combat because our perspective of large scale combat in 1987 is different than our perspective of large scale combat right now and it's and it's Better. informed and it's better it's much yeah. better it's informed and educated by what we learned doing counterinsurgency uh
2: there it's a human nature of conflict and absolutely all of that the
0: information sense. piece of it that the necessity to consolidate gains of how yeah. we how do we transition back to a better form of competition all of those things that were frankly very big ideas in 3O were things that we'd learned um so um you know i think that's also another thing that's really important, you know, is, is how we continue to learn. Are we able to adapt our doctrine with the right learning? Um,
2: well, we were blessed also by having a trade-off commander in, in the person of General Perkins. Who, Absolutely. Who, uh, who was also passionate about it. He, he was passionate about it, and, and then he was a quick study on understanding, so he didn't micromanage yep. anything we were doing. He, you know, they let me know what's the big things, and what do you want me to advocate for? Yep. That allowed us to be left alone. I think, sir, and, and that was really important. Yeah, I mean, he,
0: he gave he gave very good, very concise, very, he, he, he epitomized the philosophy of mission command. Uh, there was a significant amount of trust, but I would tell you, he also, he also checked. And I think, uh, you know, it, it was our responsibility to make sure that, you know, to maintain that trust, we had to inform up. And I think, you know, us engaging with the senior leadership, um, you know, was important for them because, you know that they needed to drive that into the into the Army as an
2: institution. Well, and you know, I joke around with what I used to do with Mike and Chuck all the time, and sometimes with you, but um, you didn't have to give uh, any sort of really detailed guidance. in other words, we we would have regular, I mean weekly touch points with you on stuff. But the things that we would work our way through. Weren't always just the big ideas. We we could focus on getting the details right because, you know, having been the bag man and up at Tradoc, being around General Perkins and being in the meetings for two years before coming out here, um, I already knew what you knew in terms of what the overall intent was, and so that you could talk to me without having to explain everything to it. And then the Lisco focus, you know, I think you know God takes care of fools and uh, takes care of fools and drunks. Right, so I'm not sure which one I fit into in any particular day, but the uh, spending four straight years in Korea and, and coming out as the division G3, where you're doing two large-scale combat exercises a year with multiple iterations of each, plus your warfighters, you know, I was very comfortable talking about the subject matter we were talking about. That doesn't mean we didn't all have to learn. There's a bunch of things to learn, but um, I think that it was almost like a perfect storm of right people in the right place at the right time to do something quickly that the army needed. Uh, and it's not like thumping on a track. It's more like luck the way it worked out. Well, and I mean, I think
0: the, uh, probably the funnest part of my job was I, I got to focus, you know, pretty much just on war fighting and thinking about war fighting and the sessions we would have in my office with my, whiteboard and y'all would save the scribbles that i put all over the whiteboards the multiple i ended up with like four whiteboards in my office by the time we were done and most of them had like multiple pages to them but uh the uh but we had some great discussions to try to hash through the friction points or whatever a new idea would be to you know how much we need to mature that or whether we would got that right or not uh or when you know as we staffed it and you know, there were people with questions or other ideas who were able to work through that, so I, I think that was, that was good.
1: So I've got this, like you've got a four star who is absolutely, and, and doc commander, who is absolutely committed to the idea of, of letting the professionals do, do what they do best and your career's worth of experience coming in saying we need to make a transition and you've got a, a, a CAD director who's straddling the line of, I know what trade doc does, but I also know war fighting from a LISCO perspective in Korea. And then eventually somebody's like, got to put pen to paper yeah. and, start, and start typing like so many like so many Samsters on, on keyboards. It's wonderful. So that's kind of like my question of, what, what was the process, and how did that work as far as, you know, did you allow airline battle to influence you, some of the language that you use? What came away from FSO? What did you choose to pick in? To so pick and put in.
2: Yeah, so I'll talk about what I think we did and then Mike say what we actually did, <laughs> right? But
3: In the beginning, dot, dot, dot.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so, all right, first we had to be clear on what problem we were trying to solve. So we used the Russian New Generation Warfare study that a lot of really smart people went and collected real-world stuff from. But we realized that even that by itself... Uh, wasn't enough because we lived in a multipolar world. So the big thing we had to do is get what problem we were trying to solve, the Army forces would be asked to solve across this range of military operations. But we had to have an agreement uh, about what we focused on. And so we got good guidance. You're going to focus on large-scale combat operations against peer threats. Well, who are the peer threats? Well, what did General Milley testify before open source in front of Congress? Russia, China, North Korea, Iran. Okay, got it. So that allows us to set things up but what we asked uh, we asked the team to do because writing doctrine is not just taking the existing thing and then saying how can i make it better it's that's part of it but the other part is when did we have a similar problem set in the past not the same but a similar problem set and let's go back with the wayback machine because we have all these publications going back 100 years and take a look about where we had the best language to address similar problems and then see, use that as a point of departure, right? So if the doctrine written in the 70s and 80s was reviewed um, and in some cases, at least in the 60s and 70s, uh, you had people that actually commanded large formations in large-scale combat operations in the Second World War or Korea or Vietnam and they approved that doctrine back then. It was probably pretty, good, right? I mean, they were real subject matter experts who had done that. Uh, And then you could do the same thing with looking at stuff from Desert Storm and so forth. So the doctrine team goes back and does research and looks to cherry pick the best things that would be applicable, and then figuring out how to wicker them into the problem we're trying to solve now, so that it's not starting from a clean sheet. Because there's plenty of things that was in the previous 3.0. 3.0 had disappeared for four years. It disappeared in 2012 as a rescinded. So, we didn't actually have an FM capstone high tactics uh, publication anymore. So, this was a new start um, yeah. and writing from scratch. And, and so, okay, we're not going to start from scratch. We're going to start from the and take the best stuff from uh, the past and then figure out, okay, so what's missing? What's new? And that gets the ideas like Consolidate Gains and some of these other things that, that were new and a multi domain appreciation of the operational environment because you had this concept that was being developed simultaneously and when we got guidance that said, hey if there's bits of this concept that makes sense to use right now and the force can do it or it's useful then put it in there and so you know there's a kind of a an iteration process with people working on concepts they send it to us to look at well uh, I, th- I
0: think that yeah. brings up an important point though you know as we go to the future we we had this discussion because you know, we used to be on a timeline. I mean we updated our doctrine based on a timeline. You know, it was every two years, every four years, whatever. And I think what what that forced was um the conditions hadn't changed, the OE, what we were doing, there was not a bunch of big inputs. There was not a there's not a stimulus for the change other than time. And so you had people rewording or reworking or rebranding stuff. Uh, That was, that was frankly, and so we started the. We actually muddled and lost a few things in those in those times. So
2: we complicated it. Yeah,
0: we did, and so you know, one of the things I said is, look, we're not gonna we're not gonna go on a timeline. It's got to be, it's got to be purposeful on why we update or change our doctrine. You know, and so we're not trying to write the same thing in different language we're trying to actually think about the new parts of the problem we're solving and, and keep the goodness of things that we have i mean you know what was it fs 1917 or 1918 15 whatever it is i mean it's probably got the best description of mission command that, I've, that 1905. I've 1905 that's it uh you know i mean by far the best description of mission command um you know but but there's there's a bunch of differences in mission command today than 1905 and so you know how do we, how do we get the depth behind that and think about those things as opposed to, you know, rebranding certain things that are that are almost uh, iconic and just need to be left alone.
2: Well, and before we let Mike talk about how they actually really did it, the one thing I would throw out there is it, perfect example of evidence of what you just said of people because we did it on timelines. We just Continuously updated things and most people because they don't read doctrine every day They'll just go with what they already know and so the words the descriptions the definitions have changed But the meaning hadn't changed to them and it was less of an incentive for you to like pay close attention to it Because all they're doing is rewording this thing that we used to do and and we're just going to call it that And so we the last three years our tactics division has gone back and taken all of the, t- the tactical terms and, and, and all these ideas and not only are they did we realize that in different books and different places yeah. and different communities the same words meant different things, but they actually, on their own, they showed some pretty good initiative. They took the definitions of things from like 1995 to, to 2000, and then looked at the different iterations of the definitions. And you know what happened? In each each time we updated the definitions of most of our terms, we made them longer. Yeah. And none, in no case were they better. Yeah. In any in, in any time, and so that's allowed us to do some other things here. Once we get that stuff straight, right, that we don't have to. Yeah.
0: Or we, you know, we would try to, we would take the, you know, take a definition and try to come up with a new term for it, for because you know, somebody had an idea. An existing definition, but hey, this word sounds better to describe that. You know, that those those are the kind of things that are not helpful in doctrine. And I think, I think, based on time and not having the, you know, something you know, a stimulus to drive it, whether we've changed, we have a national defense strategy change, we have a threat change, whatever it may be, those are the things that spur very thoughtful, innovative uh, discussion and development of doctrine. But, you know, if you put it on a timeline or if it's a tasker, um, you're going to end up with stuff just getting rewarded and, frankly, becoming less clear and less concise. Well, I
2: mean, it happened once a week. During a, the four years you were in command here, at least once a week, uh, we would have that situation where something wasn't new, but it was new to the person that was asking the question. Yeah. So I just came up with this good idea. Well, okay. What it's is in it? our doctrine. Yeah. We, we got that already. <laughs> and the number of phone calls that you would feel from people saying, we need doctrine to do this, and then you would call down there and say, don't we have doctrine to do this? And we'd send it to them. It was always interesting. Some people would say thank you, and some people didn't always even acknowledge that, oops, yeah. I probably should have known that already. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there's a Dr. No piece of this that you're like, no, stop, please. Uh, you, we don't need to confuse people. Every time you change something, it has this impact across the WPF and, 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 P, and uh, PMA and all the rest.
3: Hey, I'll be quick on the sausage-making of the writing team. And so I uh, really want to highlight is just CAD. The, uh, you know, the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate is a unique place. It's at Fort Leavenworth. We right here in CAD, Combined Arms Doctrine, generally thinking brigade and above. And so the people you get in here are top-notch people, and they're, they're, most, they're senior. And so when a lot of these questions came up, and it's, it's a combination of military and civilian. And so that makes, that makes a great team. And so when you look around, you've got to pick someone. Um, you've got to pick a team, and they've either got green suits on or they're civilians, and something we're saying, well, who's been, who has kind of actually experienced some of the 1986, the desert storms, et cetera? Well, on that team we had for FM3O, there was like three desert storm veterans that were on it, right? There was guys that lived on the Folded Gap, um, the, you know, so, but it, it's not the same, but you have some resident experience that was able to help with that. Plus, you got folks that were out there in the field that had the green suit on, that had that experience. And when you combine that team together, you know, that makes for better writing. And so you can have top-down guidance. You can look historically. And then we're on Leavenworth. We've got all this resource available. you got the college. you got MCTP. you got CALL, right? And the, all these resources that can help you. Trissa or so, TRADOC G2. Oh,
0: looking at the G2. Intel piece.
3: And so, um, yeah, you got to put pen to paper, but it's like forming the team. And uh, and then trust that the team members are going to you know kind of do your guidance, and then and then write the book. And then of course the best thing is we staff it to the army for everyone to get another look at it. Then we clean it up again, and that's not a bad book. And that's kind of you know how we make sausage around here.
2: Well, and, but the other thing is, and you know, I think this gets to your earlier point. So we didn't over delegate, right? I would tell you that from our perspective, and I know you had conversations with commandants and branch chiefs and um, COE commanders over time, but we had, outside of counterinsurgency doctrine, which was a big, massive team effort here, right, led in 2006, or five and six, um, we kind of like delegated stuff down, hey, doctrine guys, update this stuff, and I'm not sure who read, read it, but it goes up and it gets approved, and it was almost like The three star can delegate to the two star delegates to one star who delegates to the gs12 who writes the book and then nobody reads and it goes back up right that's that's excessive delegation i think because you you really need to have people the most experienced people look at stuff i think when we did this it was that iteration of i trust that you're going to write it i'm delegating you to this but i'm interested enough in that you know, you're going to share it with Chuck Schrankel. He's going to murder a bird, you are you know, red pen your thing. You're going to send it to me. I red pen your stuff. You fix it. It comes back to me. I send it to you. You red pen the heck out of it. It comes back down. We argue about stuff back and forth. Then I argue with you guys back and forth. And there was the right level of engagement, even if it drove you guys nuts sometimes. But I mean, it, it, was, it was a kind of a thing of beauty to participate in because um, you always felt like you had the top cover to take a chance and throw something out there because once you said yeah that's good that became the thing and we could move on to the next thing we weren't relitigating uh, things over and over again because we didn't have anybody to talk to yeah I mean my wife
0: tracked the she knew what chapters I was working on yeah. so so did my yeah it was a uh, that was my weekend my weekend work but it was uh, I learned a ton though as I was doing it helped me really think more clearly about the problem and i think the discussions that we had although there were a lot of them it seemed like but um you know just hey let's huddle up and spend three hours in my office going over this um well people understand that there's work that has to get done oh yeah and, absolutely and, and, and it's not just
2: the author or the authors of the chapters that do the work i mean the other people need to be involved in the work if you want to get it right um and I, I don't know, I'll defer to Mike, but I think there's some other bits and pieces of that experience that in terms of figuring out where you get this, the material, you know, to, okay, here's the new idea, what, what do we get after? You know, the whole Consolidate gains, for example, was a research project. Yeah. And it was a history thing.
0: You know, we put some stuff in this manual that we'd kind of walked away from in previous, you know, vignettes and quotes. Oh, yeah. um, which I thought helped contextualize it even better. And it, it, it helped. It, it, it's sort of a level of validation, you know, and, and I spent as much time reading and, you know, and hammering back on the vignettes and going, hey, I, let's make sure this is right, because I'm not so sure of that or that. Let's go back in and do some more research on it. Because we do have a tendency to, you know, if you're, if you're not checking your traps, you know, every historian's got a different perspective on so. I want to try to get the more ground truth on you know these things I, yeah obviously you know a quote from Clausewitz or Jomini was pretty easy to to make sure we got right but some of the vignettes that we had there were you know it was written towards not necessarily the the purpose for the vignette being in there so let's go back and do the re uh, Matt, that that one doesn't fit okay well let's find another one um but i think they helped bring context and a level mm-hmm. of uh
2: Visualization.
0: Visualization and, and like I said, experiential learning is always important. And if, if somebody has experience in something, whether they've you know they've they've read about it or they've actually experienced it or they know that other people have experienced it, um, I think it helps them frame things better in their mind and it and it and it does provide a some level of validation of the thought, which is important. Um.
1: so twenty seventeen hits it's like the October time frame and all of a sudden the glossy printed editions come out folks are excited about reading the new the new version of, of fm3o I was so excited I literally stole like the colorized copy well, off like of the Nate only, Springer's only person desk it
0: was I think yeah. so you're an exception No.
1: so what what were some of the criticisms from the force when it came out was there any pushback
0: I, you know I, I think when you you uh, there always is. I mean when you when you put doctrine out, I mean I think a couple of the big things were is, hey we're walking away from what we've been doing for the last fifteen years. And and when I when I went back in and said, hey look, consolidation of gains. When we think about that, that it's a form of exploitation and the fact that, you know, we are making, you know, the temporary permanent, that we learned that over the last fifteen years of how important that is and that it's gotta be considered, you know, before, during and after, you know, through the entire continuum. Uh, Of the conflict uh, that how we get after doing that and or you know the fact that we are still um, talking in the doctrine about how we stabilize the environment there were the joint aspect I mean when we you know I think that was kind of the as we went from full spectrum operations to Unified land operations that was really our nod to the joint force in a much more deliberate way Even though full-spectrum operations was we were embedded with joint But it was it was our overt acknowledgement that you know, as one of the unified action partners That you know, every fight is gonna be a joint fight that the jointness that we learned The good pieces of the jointness and the bad pieces that the fact that we were over reliant on Air Force fires at the expense of surface-to-surface fires You know in a contested environment uh, although the Air Force still plays a critical role to any success that the Army is going to have on the battlefield. Um, but just a better understanding of how that jointness should work, th- those were things that we learned. Soft integration, the role of soft in large-scale combat operations. That, you can look back, there was very little mention, if any mention of that in any of our previous you know, operational manuals that provided any kind of context, and those were things that we learned. National power and you know, how national power came to bear on the battlefield and how, what the Army's role was within the joint force. Uh, I think those were all things that we'd learned. Um, you know, and really, I think to a degree, mission command and initiative and being able to operate decentralized. Those, those were things that you know, early in the conflict in, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I, I think the mission command philosophy and the ability for us to operate in very small units, dispersed across in very, very large, vast areas, with multiple complex problems that we were dealing with—those were all things that we learned that 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 rolled into that doctrine. So, I would say that we probably, um, you know, and, and as I talked to that, and in fact, we had several, you know, several think tanks accuse us of of walking away from that, and when we responded back with those things and kind of showed them to them, in fact, there was a study done. Uh, There was actually, you know, an acknowledgement back that uh, actually the Army did learn a lot over the last and they've incorporated that in the doctrine. So I think, you know, I think that was probably one of the big pushback items. I think most of the other times that we got pushback um, was from page turning, you know, flipping, reading a title, looking for the looking for the three or four buzzwords and then not reading not reading the narrative behind it. And I think that was kind of a change. And one of the reasons why 3 got a little bit bigger than probably we intended it to be was we, we tried to put, well, my guidance was to put more of a narrative in it so people could, you know, I wanted to get away from, you know, bulletage checklists and, you know, things like that and, and having more of an explanatory narrative that helped people understand what the definition meant in context to that fight and where we would get pushback, it might be somebody extracting a sentence, taking it at face value, not seeing all the explanatory language, and when I would send them that back, it would be like, okay, you know, you guys got it. Uh, and I think probably the last one, and Rich, I'm sure as you guys went through the CRM and stuff, you can probably remember a lot more. There was this, uh, because we were in the throes of thinking about a new concept, and it had evolved, and it started to evolve the multi-domain operations at that time, and, you know, and the guidance that I gave because, you know, concepts are, you know, what we want to be able to do and doctrine is what we can do, uh, you know. And there's got to be a balance between, you know, doctrine needs to drive how we equip our force and how we man our force and how we, but it can't be so revolutionary that when you put it out in the force, you can't do it for 10 years because you're waiting on, you know, the Army to get its stuff together. So you got to get a balance there. But I did want to push the envelope a little bit because a lot of the discussion at the joint level was there was a recognition now that, hey, we needed to think differently about war fighting. Uh, And there were some concepts coming out of the Joint Staff that were very service-centric and pretty myopic on how they were defining the national problem. And try to get that conversation a little broader of, you know, that we've got these four problems that are out there, and every service has a role and has a different role in each one of them um and how the army's going to deal with that i think you know so we we did incorporate as much of the multi-domain concept and it was really a hundred page concept at that time it had not been through a lot of rigorous experimentation and other stuff but there were some there were some thoughtful ideas in there that were going to shape how we were going to think about the future so for for 3O to be something that we could do today but also would help help guide us to modernization guide us to to help us you know drive how we change the army because you know with taa we're looking six seven years in advance uh, and weapon systems we're looking at for to make it enough you know keeping a balance to where we could still do it but it would see far enough forward that we could see you know what the next two or three steps are it wasn't just about what was in the inbox it was it was about how we needed to get to what was gonna be in our inbox in five ten fifteen years so i don't know richard you or mike got
2: yeah so i'll leave the
0: i think if... consolidation of gains was the other one that was a big yes yeah, sir so
2: I would throw two overriding factors that, that drove criticism and, and we actually appreciate criticism because it sharpens your argument and oh by the way if they're right about something and in some cases they were um, then it allows you to, to to fix some things the next time you give it a try um, the first was F, FM 30 with the focus on large-scale combat operation against peer threats required a cultural shift around across the army and so because it required a cultural shift you know that that operational environment slide that we still use that i briefed the other day um the bulk of the people who were reading the book for the first time the bulk of their experience was since 2003. i mean the army's a young organization and 85 percent of the population is under 40 uh, and maybe higher than that so the you are telling them things that are new that it's the first read you're not gonna necessarily absorb and you have trouble visualizing, so that's one. And then the second piece was we were getting a lot of criticism from people that didn't read it. They saw a slide pitch or or whatever, and they said, well, how come we didn't address this? Well, because it's a PowerPoint briefing and we can't put everything in the book. Yeah, they'd flip to the
0: logic chart and then go, well, hey, in your logic chart, it doesn't say anything about, you know. Civil affairs. Civil affairs, well, okay, it's a logic chart. So now I I think, and again, it gets back to that intellectual laziness that I talked about. And frankly, you know, probably had you know ruffle a lot of feathers because you know when i would get that response i'm like don't be intellectually lazy read the manual come back and line by line tell me what you don't think is right think is right because i've read it probably 30 times you know i mean you know the number of versions that i sent back over here and scribble outs and like i'd go back and look at version one Well, i changed this last time and now i'm going back to what they originally said damn it and i went through like three iterations and but, you know, it was a part of the whole thinking process. and uh,
2: Yeah, so the other criticism, sir, though, is uh, so you touched on the consolidate gains. What is this? Why are we doing this? What does this mean? You remember the conversation with General McCarronin about that, that once we explained it to him, he actually became a great champion of that with the Division and Corps commanders, when at first it came across as a criticism. Yeah, by, and
0: with General Abrams. I mean, General you know, Abrams right. had concerns, and I think the— you know, being the great armored warfare leader that he is, you know, I think when we contextualize it, that it's a form of exploitation. He goes, I get it. Right. Because, and hey, I'm exploiting the success that I've had.
2: But you talk about the walking away thing. I mean, I did probably 300 engagements across, you know, all three components in the, in the force over the last four or five years. And, you know, you always get somebody that says, oh, well, you're walking away from all this. I said, we haven't walked away from anything. All those books are still there. In fact, we continue to, re- to revise them. We're talking about one particular publication with a uh, specific focus, but all these other things that you're talking about, particularly nowadays with that competition, crisis, conflict, we used to use the Army Strategic Roles. Um, you know, it's in there. Just read it. Um, so that's one. The length of the book was another one. It was 384 pages, I think. Yeah. Um, but there was a reason for that, yeah. and, and there was. 150 of those pages probably are, are, were based on two chapters. One, which was to educate the force about what was in the army besides BCTs, yeah. right? And and what those echelons above brigade are responsible for, which we hadn't put in the previous doctrine for a long time. Um, and, and then the other was a bunch of very basic blocking and tackling tactics stuff that we had to put in there because it wasn't right in the other books. Correct. Uh, all of which we can pull out, and we are pulling out of the next uh, book. And then the last one that used to drive us to the craziest was the operational framework. Yeah. And because you had a bunch of people who grew up being taught that counterinsurgency was the most uh, complex form, the PhD level of warfare, and everything's complex, and, and so you guys are oversimplifying by putting this thing. In, and you're talking about linear operations, and so. No, we're not talking about linear operations, but when you put lines on a piece of paper, it's going to look linear. It's two-dimensional. Um, read what we're saying. It's a mental framework for the operations you conduct, and the words linear do not once appear in 384 pages. Well, you know, it's funny, now that we've, since we've transitioned the Combat
0: Training Centers, the Mission Command Training Program, the National Training Center, JRCC, to, to, and. and And our COCOM and ASCC Theater Army level exercises have shifted back to how we fight, you know, a pure threat. Um, The argument of, you know, hey, we've we've gone from some, you know, PhD level war fighting down to, you know, something that's much more linear and rote. Everybody realizes, wow, we were pretty wrong about thinking that way because, you know, this is a much much more difficult fight much more complex fight there are so many more variables and risks and requirements and the 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 amount of intellectual and technical knowledge and skills that you've got to have at much lower grades to be able to be successful in this is much more apparent now than it was you know when we first started writing to the doctrine so as they've started to train and experience it, they're realizing that you know, it's not that counterinsurgency is easy. It's just it's different. And at each one of the echelons, you know, the tactics piece of it is is you know at the company and platoon level with, you know, brigades doing, opera almost operational level stuff. Divisions certainly doing operational stuff. Corps doing operational to theater level or strategic level stuff. That that portion portion of it is complicated because you know and, and complex because they've got to deal with they're dealing with you know um, you know, state department entities, they're dealing with non-governmental organizations. There's a lot of soft interaction, but it's all fairly um, narrow interaction. And when you start to get into large-scale combat, all of that's still present, Um, but it's at a much more complex and intense level. Um, And just the the tempo and violence um, that's involved in large-scale combat and the risk um, I think now the Army has a much greater appreciation for just how hard it is to stay ready for this type of fight and, and what it takes from a combined arms team perspective and that, that all of the war fighting functions have to be synchronized and integrated and that, uh, you know, your... Your branch expertise is important. Branch
2: expertise That's is important. That's why we important. have branches. I mean, exactly. that was one of the things that, you know, that subject matter The relevance
0: expertise. of some of the branches, you know, that that really were subjugated to doing something other than they were trained for, you know, I mean, the proficiency of a field artilleryman or a chemical officer or, you know, a signal officer is very different in this kind of fight. I mean, much more relevant um, and needed uh, than, you know, maybe in a counterinsurgency fight.
1: So gentlemen, last thing, you've five years removed from this book and the process that you went through to try and write it. So what now with all of that experience, do you see as a gap that you wish you could have addressed and how should we address it? Or how more importantly, should Lieutenant Colonel Eric Gilge's team toiling away on the current edition of FM3O, how should they address it?
2: Well, I think the one thing that I think's been a blessing, uh, and it goes back to incorporating as much of the, initially the multi-domain battle, now multi-domain operations, concept into the rest of our doctrine following this version of 3.0 that came out in October of 2017. um, Acts as a bridging strategy as we work to the new one. A lot of the ideas that are in the new one are already resident in our field manuals, our our army doctrinal publications, and a lot of our ATPs. Because we've updated 220-odd books uh, based on a focus primarily, not in every case, but primarily on large-scale combat operations and a multi-domain approach to seeing yourself, seeing the threat, and understand the operational environment. And so we've been doing that for four odd years now, and that makes it a little bit easier for us to focus down, and then I already talked, we got the tactics book straight, we got all these other things sorted out now that allows Eric's team to focus specifically on um, conducting operations at echelons above brigade, against a China or a Russia or Iran or North Korea in the context of those specific operational environments. Whereas we were we tended to be more basic blocking and tackling and not as focused on that bigger, we, you mentioned it, but it could get lost in the length of the book. And that allows us to write a book that's at least a hundred pages shorter um, and really focused on the kinds of things you're seeing happen in the real world in, a, in Ukraine right now. Uh, and I think after what we've seen happening in Ukraine right now that we're on the right track. And that that makes us feel good that we're not getting it largely wrong. We'll, we'll see how things turn out. Yeah. I think the
0: operations that are currently, you know, that that happened in Ukraine and are happening in Ukraine right now validate much of the concerns that this doctrine gets after. Yes, sir. And, and our understanding it, of the OE. Yeah, and it helps us it helps us validate and we're also going to learn from this too. You know, I think to to get to your point um earlier i I think what what ultimately flowed out of you know fm30 was about how do we change the army the right way to be able to deal with the right problems um the national defense strategy was not out when we released it there it was it was ahead of a lot of things um and we were, we were like up on the balls of our feet that we might have to make some change, like some immediate changes to 3-0 if the national defense strategy went somewhere else. I think fortunately, and I don't know that 3-0, I'm sure all the conversations that went on around stuff helped shape things, but, but the good news was is that we were a little ahead, but we didn't have to make a lot of changes. But to me, as I look back, what one of the key things that came out later, uh, really in 2019, was the gap study the, the lisco gap study and, and and as i look back at that i wish i would have done that earlier as the cat commander um and it probably would have been something that would have been appropriate to almost do simultaneous with the doctrine because you know we're addressing we're addressing gaps so we went back and we did this gap assessment based on the doctrine uh, and how we're going to fight in the oe and i think we could have done those at the same time and started this this change in in the army earlier um Although, you know, history will say whether we were we were, we were too late or just in time. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, looking back at that, so I, I think there's another, you know, as we refine MDO and we, and we finish this manual up, we need to probably take a quick look at the gap study that we did and see if there's any new gaps or, you know, adjustments we need to make and how that drives, you know, Army processes, um, you know, to modernize
2: and, and update the formation. But that gap study did give us a more detailed problem set to write against in the yeah, current 3.0. Absolutely. So
0: we can acknowledge those. Yeah, things. there's almost a cycle
2: there, you know, yeah. and I think that's a... Uh, and it's probably time that we do another one here in Canada. And I
0: think the, the, you know, the learning piece of, you know, China is different today than it was when we wrote the 2017. They've 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 more rapidly evolved than we thought they were. Um, you know, I think the fact that we're getting after, you know, the ATPs that, that describe, you know, their their military doctrine is is helpful um so i think there's a lot of really good things in place now that we didn't necessarily have in place when we wrote that the original 3-0 um that are gonna that are gonna help but uh you know looking back at it i i think the only uh you know if if i could rewind the tape and go you know i would i would change this one thing or take this one thing out i think it would be um you know, probably the consolidation area, the operational framework, you know, that one looking back at it in rear operations, you know, we, we, sometimes you're predisposed. You don't want to use a particular term because it, it has some sort of emotional level with it. And that was one for me that, you know, and everybody, call, else. And and everybody else. I mean, so there is, there is some, there's some, and, and I think you got to pay particular attention to that, that you don't get, any bias towards a particular description or something for for no good reason. You know, there's gotta be some good reason behind it. Uh, and again, it gets back to renaming things that maybe you don't need to rename. Um, you know, that's probably one that I think that, that, that probably caused um, confusion, um, you know, between the support area command post, rear area operations, the support area, the relationship, all of those things, and consolidation of gains in the consolidation area. What we thought was a neat and tidy solution to it, and at the time it made perfect sense from a logical perspective, looking back at it, um, you know, it it was the thing that probably became the one thing that boiled and continued to boil with the manual. Everything else, I think, you know, everybody was like, yeah, all on board It's good, it's driving all the right stuff, but we've got problems with this. You know, if I could go back and excise that little piece out of it, that would have been the thing. And it's been excised out of this one, so that's good.
2: Well, but the bigger ideas or the reason why we could comfortably move on was that the whole importance of consolidating gains was accepted by the force. Even though we didn't describe things as clearly or with as much utility maybe as people would use. And now that set us free to go... And do Well, and we, we made different. the
0: mistake, you know, I mean, much like we made the mistake with mission command of of, oh, of it having multiple that. definitions, you know, that it's a philosophy. It's a it's how we command and control. You know, it's it is command and control, uh, but we don't do command and control. I mean, that whole that whole thing, you know, that was that was some, some baggage. Now I think we've got it in the right place about it not being a war fighting function, that it is our philosophy for how we command and control. I think we've got that in the right place. Um you but know, Rio set us
2: free to do that. Yeah.
0: But consolidation of gains, you know, the concept was exactly right and was the right lesson we learned. It's when we put a piece of the operational framework and said we're gonna have a consolidation area.
2: Right. You know,
0: my idea, my bad, you know. Um, I think yeah we that
2: fishing for that was a whiteboard session. Of yeah, fishing it was, crew. and oh. I can remember it to this day. Yes, and it right. was
0: kind of like, you know, oh, we God. thought we were so smart. Uh, <laughs> that was that was the one that you know, as I look back at it, caused the most difficulty for the army to understand. But what it did was it really forced it forced our culture to think about the rear area and the level of importance that it should be. So in in fact, it may have been it may have been genius. <laughs> uh, we're who going knows? With that. But but you know, it, because. You know, the, the rear area, you know, when I was growing up, was much of an afterthought. And the fact that we tried to reshape it to be something of the importance that it was, and the, and the fact that, you know, you were gonna be doing combat tasks back there, that discussion went on in the Army. We just didn't like the language. And so changing the language, I think now we've probably got the Army in a better place uh, with thinking about the importance of, you know, how we sustain and how we, you know, drive operational reach in the force and how we protect ourselves. And what's going to be this, you know, this very dynamic uh, fight through the depth of the operational framework? So, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe, it, maybe history will say that it was it was good that it happened. But you know, if I could excise it right now, I probably would have went back and taken it out because it was our version of active defense, right? So yeah, it Roger. Gave you something to work through. Roger. I'll tell you the other
2: big positive impact I think that the books had was it was not just the recognition that specific branch expertise is important to a joint and combined arms approach to operations. It's not. It's more than important. It's critical. If you show up and you're supposed to be representing, because uh, warfighting functions can sometimes be too broad. I mean, yeah. it's a branch expertise, yeah. and the and the the application may be in support of one warfighting function or maybe another or multiple. Um, that that was big. But I think the second and third order effect, if you remember, it was uh, a reemphasis and resurgence of people paying attention to sustainment, yeah. and that was probably, I think that it may have been the most critical outcome, yeah. other than fixing the mission command debacle, but, yeah. but this emphasis that math matters, that, that, that sustainment's got to be central to your uh, operational approach and the operational art, and that we need to pay attention to it. There's got to be champions for sustainment in the other communities, and it yeah. can't just be sustainers trying to figure this all out by themselves.
0: No, you know, and I think your your point on the branch specific is really an important point that many may not think about. And and frankly, I hadn't I hadn't drawn the linkage until just this discussion. But you know, many of our MOSs, you know, and and branches that were not um, central central to the fight, um, you know, field artillery chemical engineers to a large degree, MPs to some degree. I mean, you know, when, when one of the, air defense, when one of those officers, NCOs, soldiers showed up in your formation, you were more concerned about what their experience was in COIN and what they, you know, what, what are you good at? Well, hey sir, you know, I spent all this time patrolling. Okay, good, you're a, but nobody was concerned about, hey, are you proficient as an air defender? Or are you proficient as a field artilleryman? Uh, and now the expertise is when you walk in the door you look at the branch and you have an expectation that that field artillery officer you know knows you know the things you need for accurate and predicted fires they they can you know help you develop the right kind of fire plan they know how to build a fast P you know they understand weapons ranges weapons effects they understand targeting that you know they understand joint targeting that that there's an expectation when that branch walks in there was not that expectation before it's like can you do what we're doing in coin? Which is not any of that stuff specific to your branch. So I think that's been good. And there's a resurgence in, in, in a technical and professional level of skills and knowledge that our leaders and our soldiers have to have for large scale combat that is branch specific uh, and some branches that were frankly less important um, in the coin fight are of the utmost importance in large scale combat. And we've got to rebuild some of that because, uh, you know, experience and, and what they've been doing and the iterations that they've done, they haven't had as much practice. So that's our, that's our road ahead.
2: General Perkins called it an
0: adequate level of your
2: Yeah.
1: Well, gentlemen, um, that wraps up my questions. Have you got any other great insights or advice you want to leave the audience with before we, uh, before we depart for the day?
3: Mike? OK, I'll say one thing. I think Eric's team's in good shape. Um, we took a real good stab at this in 2017 and since then we've had four and a half years, five years to learn. Folks have it in the training centers. They have done it in operations. Um, we have a chance, as you said, Mr. Creed to to fix some of our doctrine. We got a 394 now that's updated on our echelons from, you know, division up through theater army. So we got a better body of, of knowledge, we've got more experience, and we got a whole new team now of smart folks that now can take, you know, what we did in 2017 and make it better for this next version that's coming out.
2: I don't think I have anything to add. Uh, it's been uh, real good catching up, sir, yeah. and reliving the, the good old days. Uh, and remembering you know, how much work actually was involved with all those whiteboards, and thank god they invented digital cameras so we could take pictures yeah. of that stuff because trying to make your own sketches was tough but we, we really appreciate you being here well no it's
0: it's been fun and I've, I've enjoyed it and i appreciate you asking me to do this you know the you know you get lots of trinkets as you uh progress through your career uh in the army you know there's going away gifts and all that stuff and when you when you Leave a pretty large command, you know. Uh, uh, lots of people want to give you lots of different things, just you know. And I, I told everybody, you know, give me a book so I can learn something. And uh, but I would tell you that the out of all the really cool colors and flags that I've got, you know, on my walls and stuff, I think the thing that I, no kidding, cherish the most is a 50 cal bottle opener that says I was the FM 30 writing team. Um, and that meant more to me to get that than I think any other thing I got while I was in the Army. Um, you know, and, and so I, I learned a ton uh, while we were doing this and during my time as a CAT commander. And I continue to learn now as a senior mentor. And uh, and it's why I was glad to be able to come up here today and kind of get caught up on where we're going and how we're thinking about the future. And I appreciate the opportunity to, to comment on the new 3-0, but, uh, you know, as I said, that the Army can only change in the right way through its Combat Training Center program, which is underpinned by a really good doctrine. Um, you can write really good doctrine, but if you, don't have, you know, if you don't have the stimulus to drive the change, which to me, that's our Combat Training Centers or actual combat, uh, those are the two kind of crucible things that help drive the experiential relevance of that uh, down in our force. But that doesn't mean that you can just go to a Combat Training Center Um, and you know think that you're gonna get infused with doctrine you know they're they're all doctrinally based but you've got to you got to read and understand uh, and think about our doctrine and I think it's a uh, I think it's important uh, because it's not prescriptive it's descriptive and it helps us think about problem solving and how we need to solve problems and and if you understand um, and can contextualize how our doctrine is written uh, it will also help you better define new problems that, that are emerging. And, and our nation is going to gonna constantly face new problems. It may be that the flag may be the same, you know, the leader of the problem may be the same, but they're constantly evolving. The threats are constantly evolving. Uh, being a, you know, if we talk about seeing ourselves, seeing the enemy and seeing the terrain, uh, you know, those things, those things all change. The enemy is going to continue to adapt to what we're doing. We've got to continue to adapt. We've got to better appreciate uh, the terrain and that terrain is, you know, the human terrain that is out there. Um, You know, the cognitive piece of war fighting, the temporal piece of that war fighting, uh, the physical attributes that are out there. So um, continue to understand those and think about them and then putting them into action. Uh, at the combat training centers and in combat is how we continue to develop you know the great leaders that need to have the initiative and be able to take the right and appropriate level of risk on the battlefield to, to seize and exploit you know you know those opportunities that are going to be very fleeting uh, in this kind of fight so uh, thanks for everything you and the CAD team continue to do. Um, it's not a huge team and but it has a huge impact on our army and the joint force and you know, I, th- I think I'll, I'll dismount with that, that, you know, the, the, the thing that I appreciate probably most when I was here at CAC was how intertwined we are with the other services and the other nations out there, our partners, and the interactions that this team, you're probably our most joint and combined team that we have uh, because you are the tentacles, the intellectual tentacles that reach out and connect us with our joint partners, our our interagency partners, uh, and our multinational partners, and uh, the complexities the world faces, there are going to be problems that, that are going to require us to do it not alone. Not alone as an army, certainly not alone as a as a nation. Um, so y'all are a big part of that. And thanks for all the work that each of you do uh, every day. It means a lot. Man, uh, our army owes you a great debt, and I do too. So thank you.
1: In getting ready for this podcast, I actually went back to the history books for some context. Along with the 2017 edition of FM3O, I dug all the way back to 2008, 2001, along with the 1993-86 editions of FM105. I even went back to the 1905 FSR, the Field Service Regulation. You can find these held at the Army Central Repository. You can also find copies throughout the internet. The 2017 transition to Lisco in FM3O was marked by also a really deep well of articles and papers. To craft some of the questions, I ended up starting with meeting the challenge of large-scale combat operations today and tomorrow, which was penned by Lieutenant General Lundy in September 2018 in Military Review. He also followed it up with three perspectives on consolidating gains, which was written by Lieutenant General Lundy, Mr. Creed, who was Colonel Creed at the time, and Colonels Nate Springer and Scott Pence in September 2018, also published with Military Review. What really drove a lot of the questions was looking back on some of the articles that came from a younger generation and from different voices. Large-scale combat operations, How the Army Can Get Its Groove Back by Major James King, was found in Modern Warfare Institute's uh, 2018 June online edition. And also, the article that I mentioned previously by David Barno and Nora Bensahel, that's U.S. Military's Dangerous Embedded Assumptions, which was published in The War on the Rocks in April 2018. And then, where is the... Breaking Doctrine is a team effort. Without the crew in Special Doctrine Division here at CAD, we wouldn't be able to bring you this show. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by the man for all seasons, Captain Wyatt Harper, who you can also catch in our popular MDMP Doctrine Digest series on YouTube. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. Please don't forget to subscribe to either Google or Apple Podcasts, and follow us on social media at U.S. Army Doctrine, to get updates on new podcasts, our Doctrine Digest videos, and also publications. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and Colonel Springer, I still have your copy of FM3O, if you want it back. This has been Breaking Doctrine.